0: Good morning. My name is John Roberts. I'm the campus pastor at New Life Gladstone. So excited that you're here today as we get to look at Psalm 72. Please turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already, and uh, we'll get to it. So the first thing I want to ask you is I want to ask you, who was the best leader or who is the best leader of all time? It's a good question. It's a debatable question. As a matter of fact, there are books on this, and no surprise, there are countless websites. So I've combed through a few of them and come up with a list of some of the best leaders of all time. Here they are. Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Lincoln, Washington, Napoleon, Roosevelt and Roosevelt, Churchill, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Caesar Augustus, Queen Elizabeth, Chairman Mao, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler. Now, while these were all leaders and they were effective in certain things, um, they all had pretty serious flaws. Now, some of these flaws were very obvious. The Hitlers, the Stalins, the Mao. Those were obvious flaws that really canceled out what they were doing and the good that they did, if they did any good at all. There are other leaders that have flaws but maybe aren't as obvious. People like the Caesars, the Roosevelts, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Queen Elizabeth I, all had flaws. But what about those other guys that I mentioned? Gandhi, Mandela, King, Lincoln, Washington, Churchill. Did they have flaws? Well, yes. Modern scholarship and even people in their time pointed out hypocrisy, inconsistencies. Things like sexual misconduct, adultery, compromises, they were bad husbands, they were bad fathers, they owned slaves. In our current culture, there is a a, a spat of canceling. This term, canceling, is where you take a historical figure and despite something good that they did, they have some fatal flaw which basically says they should be canceled, removed from the history books, removed from public awareness, in effect deleting them from history. Hitler, for example, is somebody, yeah, do we we teach about him? Or do we say, ah, let's devote our time to someone who wasn't evil or mostly evil? Talk about virtuous people instead of talking about these awful people and the things they did. See, the world has diagnosed the problem in this cancel culture that we have here in America, in the world right now. They've diagnosed it. These leaders, they don't measure up. They're not perfect. They have flaws. But the world's wrong here because they've neglected the biblical view of leadership. They've neglected the biblical model, the biblical picture of what it means to be a leader. So the best they can do is they can delete or cancel the individual and hope that they, the deleters, don't also get deleted someday or canceled someday. Now this idea of removing people in history that I disagree with or that I think have flaws it is kind of, it doesn't sit well with me. It, it makes me upset in that canceling someone does not let us learn from them. Someone who has done great things but has a blind spot. Now maybe the blind spot is rather large. You could drive a truck through it. Does that mean we delete them? Does that mean we remove them from our history books? Is the removal of people with fatal flaws from the history books, deleting them, is that the correct lesson that we should get from these people's lives? Be perfect, otherwise we'll delete you. So when I'm in charge, do I get to delete the stories and not talk about the things that I disagreed with? I remember when I was in college and I was at a local community college and we were studying U.S. history and we stopped talking about the U.S. history in 1961 and then we started talking about it again in 1973. And we skipped all the stuff that happened there. Kind of important time. And my professor said, that was the Vietnam War era. I didn't agree with the Vietnam War, so we won't study it. is that the correct posture we're to have with history and with leaders? Is the weaknesses and flaws just to say, you know what, don't do these. If you forget the history, you're going to end up doing them. Now, not only is U.S. and world history that way, but so is church history. Some of the biggest names in church history, some of these these men and women who have done amazing things for the Lord, they were slave owners. Some were terrible husbands and fathers. Some were anti-Semitic. Some stood by and watched people be put to death for heresy. And others disobeyed lawful acts of the king. The Bible has this as well. Biblical leaders aren't immune from this. Peter, right, denied Christ. Okay, but that was before the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Peter has the Holy Spirit in him, and he forgets to meet with the Gentiles. He treats them wrongly. Paul gets in an argument with Barnabas, and they both get mad and go their own separate ways. The widows are neglected in the church. There's the Jew and Gentile argument constantly. Old Testament, we have Solomon chases after foreign gods. David had Uriah murdered to cover up his adultery with his wife. Moses disobeyed God. Noah got drunk and had some serious lapse of judgment. And Adam, the father of us all, who could literally, literally walk with God, he didn't believe that God would tell him the truth about the trees he could eat from. So what do we do with all of this failure, all these leaders, these historical figures, and even current day figures, leaders that fail? What do we do with that? What do we do with leaders that succeed? And do we measure, is it a, is it a scale? Do we simply say, don't do that? Well, it is a good life lesson, don't do those things right? Hitler did this, don't do them. That's a good life lesson. But is that all that we can get from this history? Is that all we can get from these leaders that we currently see? Don't be like this leader, don't be like that leader, be like this leader? Are we left with either canceling those who had the bad mistakes or just leaving them be and then don't be like them? Is that it? And the answer is, oh man, it's not. There's so much more to the story than what we see here. There's something so much more. Not only are the great people in history with their flaws and all, but also for the people that we see today, the people that are going to mess up. Our leaders are flawed. We're gonna mess up. So all of history can teach us the greatest lesson, the ultimate lesson, the one that makes sense of everything. And this is where Christianity, the Bible teaches Christianity in the way it does. It teaches us the Bible makes sense of everything. A book that was written, the last book of the Bible was written almost 2,000 years ago, and yet it speaks to today, election 2020, world leaders today. So we see right at the beginning, we see there's a job description in Psalm 72 of this earthly king that ultimately no king on earth will ever hit because it's that perfect leadership. And so we're going to explain through this psalm why we long for perfect leaders and why we're so disappointed with bad leaders. We are not to trust in humans. We're to trust in the true king, seeing how he is the one we long for when our leaders do good, or more likely when they do evil. But first, we need to get familiarized with the psalm. So you're already there in Psalm 72. While I begin talking about it, put your finger or a piece of paper or something in Psalm 1, because we're also going to look there as well. So the opening lines of Psalm 72. For Solomon. Now probably what this means, uh, or some of your translations may say of Solomon, this is probably written for Solomon, not by him. Mainly it means that this was read during his coronation. So Solomon is having this psalm read as he's getting ready to be king. And so there's two ways that this psalm is traditionally viewed. One is as a prayer for Solomon, Lord, allow these things to be done for Solomon. And the other is, hey, Solomon, boy, this is, uh, is going to be your job description. You need to match up to this. And so we're going to look at these two in in concert, and we're going to see how they apply to us today. So the first one we're going to do is we're going to look at this psalm as a prayer. Now, we do not have a king. We have a president, along with a lot of other elected leaders for our republic, and we don't have coronations. But we do have inaugurations, and at inaugurations, there will be religious figures who will... At times, pray. Sometimes they'll speak a blessing over the president. So, this prayer that we see here is not just a prayer for Solomon. It's actually a prayer for all leaders. It's a model, it's a template for us as we can pray for our leaders. This prayer ultimately grounds us in God, in His character, which then allows God to say, Be righteous. And as a part of righteousness, which is God's character, which is who God is, he says you need to be just, you need to fight oppression, you need to be merciful, you need to show grace, and all of this flows out of God's character. It would be easy for us to take our own views of those words and imply them in there, but these are all tied to God's character. So can we pray? Can you pray? Can I pray for those who are in authority over us? even if I dislike them, even if I don't like their newest ruling, even if I think that maybe they're doing things that are not going to help people. What about the ones I disagree with? And sadly, what about the ones that I hate? I know I'm not supposed to, but sometimes leaders and politicians, there's hatred that comes out. So what am I supposed to do? Can I pray for them? Well, the Bible says... You can, and you should. Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, one. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And Paul, being wise like he is with the Holy Spirit inside of him, knows that some people will say all people, but not them. So in verse 2, he says, for kings and all who are in high positions. So translation, for the president and everybody else in government even local government, that they will lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, verse 3. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, first off, we see we are to pray for them. Can we set aside our differences to pray for those in authority? Well, I would like for us to try We're going to do it right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this psalm and I'm going to pray it back to God for our leaders. So if you would bow your head with me and I will read this prayer and you can just agree with me and amen and and let's pray. So Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, God, we pray for our leaders. And when we pray for these leaders, we mean our president, our vice president, our speaker of the house our senators, our congressmen and congresswomen, our Supreme Court chief justices, our Supreme Court justices, our appointed cabinet members and bureaucrats, our generals, our admirals, our governors, our attorney generals, our judges, our commissioners, our city council members, our police chiefs, our fire chiefs, our superintendents of school, our school boards, and all other leaders that we come into contact with. We pray. Give our leaders your justice, O God, your righteousness. May they judge your people with righteousness, Lord, and your poor with justice. Lord, the, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May they defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Lord, may the oppressor fear you, O God, when the sun, while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may our leaders be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In our leaders' days, may the righteous flourish, Lord, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May our leaders have dominion from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. May they deliver the needy when they call, and the poor, and him who has no helper. Let our leaders have pity on the weak and the needy, and save the lives of the needy, O Lord. From oppression and violence, may they redeem their lives, and precious is the innocent's blood in their sight. May we pray for them continually, blessings invoked for them all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, and on the tops of mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. In your name, amen. Can we do that? Prayer is powerful. We're in the midst of a 40-day prayer uh, focus for our church. Can we pray for those in leadership despite what they view, how they view, what their worldview is, what their party is, what we think of their choices? Well, this psalm says, yeah. First Timothy says we should. And so I encourage you to pray that. So now we've prayed that. That's the first way this psalm is interpreted. The second way this psalm is interpreted is as a job description. And like we've already seen, this job description is, is intense. So let's look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 now. Psalm one says, Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither wither, and at all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now go right into verse uh, chapter two. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord Holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with an iron rod and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 start the entire book of Psalms, which originally the first 72 were a group together. And so, this is the bookends of the Psalms. It starts with, This is what a godly man looks like. This is what a godly king looks like. And then in Psalm 72, we get, Here's the godly man king. We get them together. And so this is a huge, lofty goal for for Solomon. This psalm is a prayer that the king in David's line will be the psalm one man and the psalm two king at which the Psalter begins. And ultimately, this is a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, where he said, where God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this, this 72 is this beginning of the end of the culmination of this righteous king coming. And ultimately there will be thanksgiving and praise and celebration when this king comes. And so the prayer is that Solomon would be that. And then Solomon gets the, this is how you're supposed to be this incredibly high job description. So now we're going to go back through the psalm quickly, but we're going to hit the kind of the points again. We're going to look at it from a slightly different translation. This translation is much more declarative about who the king is, or what the king is like and how the king's supposed to be, as opposed to asking God for the, the king to be this way. And This is the New English translation, the net translation. Verse 1, O oh God, grant the king the ability to make just decisions. Grant the king's son the ability to make fair decisions. So if the king does this, this first prayer in, in one verse 1, this first ask of God, if this happens, then the king will rule accordingly. Nature will, will bless those who are a part of this king's reign. And then the king will vindicate the oppressed. And we see this in verses 2, 3, and 4. So verse 2 Then he will judge your people fairly, your oppressed ones, equitably. This is, the king will rule accordingly. The first virtue of government in Scripture is righteousness. And righteousness is God's character reflected. And so, when the king has the ability to make just decisions, he has the ability to act like God in righteousness. Verse 3. The mountains will bring news of peace to the people, and the hills will announce justice. Nature would show that they are being righteous. So this is the idea of a fruitful harvest for the king's kingdom, for the people who live as a part of the kingdom. And then in verse 4, he will defend the oppressed among the people. He will deliver the children of the poor and crush the oppressor. The king will vindicate the oppressed. If a righteous king is going to deliver the poor uh, and defend the poor and deliver the needy, he will also have to defeat those who are oppressing him. So this is the great king looking for the poor and the marginalized, caring for them. Also, the king is going to meet their spiritual needs along with their physical needs. And so we see this picture of the king who is in touch with everybody in his kingdom, rich or poor, he is meeting the needs of all of them. And these first four verses, again, it's righteousness. It's righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. It's because that's the first virtue of government in Scripture. It's not compassion. It's not something else. It starts with righteousness. And then from there, builds off of that. The Mosaic Law forbids judgment that's based on partiality for both the rich and for the poor. Instead, it's meant to be Equal, But in this psalm, the psalmist points out, it's your job to take care of those who need your help. Verse 5, people will fear you as long as the sun and moon remain in the sky from generation after generation. Again, that's that spiritual help that I mentioned a second ago. It's that they fear God. There's awe, there's respect, there's authority given to God. Verses 6 and 7, he will descend like rain on the mown, mown grass, like showers that drench the earth. During his days, the godly will flourish. Peace will prevail as long as the moon remains. One author writes, this psalm provokes us to long for a better king, better than that it's ever been provided. Verse 8, may he rule from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. This this kingdom, it's like what we saw in Psalm 2, where it's to the ends of the earth. It means as far as you can go. So what it means is you get on the the west coast and you go west and you keep going west. And when you can't go west anymore, then you're at the end of his rule. Anybody who knows their geography knows you go west, you just keep going around the earth. It's a continuous rule. It has no limits. The leaders and the rulers in our world wish they had kingdoms as big as the kingdom that is promised here. All other power is subordinate to his. He has no rival and there's no antagonist that can touch him. Verse 9, before him the coastlands will bow down and his enemies will lick the dust. So the coastlands are that unconquerable group of people. Some translations say nomads or, or people that are wild and unruly. And it says they will bow down. Now that's not a you will bow. It's a they came and did it of their own free will. And so what we see is that the wild and the lawless will bow down gladly and say, I'll be with you, king. And then the second part of the the verse 9, his enemies will lick the dust. That means they will be utterly broken and humbled. One author writes, tongues which rail at the Redeemer deserve to lick the dust. Those who will not joyfully bow to a prince richly merit to be hurled down and laid prostrate. The dust is too good for them since they've trampled on the blood of Christ. So you see this picture of this king that is so righteous and everything he does is righteous. Everything he does is pointing to God. Now verses 10 and 11, we see the races and the nations which always seem to be warring will be brought together and offer their services to this king. Verse 10, the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands will offer gifts. The kings of Sheba and Seba will bring tribute. Now Tarshish was a, a port. And we've seen this other, in other places in the Old Testament. But it's a port that would have been farthest west port you could go. We don't really know where it is. It could have been Spain. It could have been North Africa. But we do know it's a long ways away. So in the minds of the Jewish people, this is so far away it might as well be Mars. right? And, and that's how far... This son of David's rule will go. Charles Spurgeon writes, Across the blue sea shall his scepter be stretched. The white cliffs of Britain already own him. The gems of the southern sea glitter for him. Even Iceland's heart is warm with his love. Madagascar leaps to receive him. And if there be isles of the equatorial seas whose spices have as yet not been presented to him, even there he shall receive a revenue of glory. This idea of the king is everywhere glorified. Verse 11, all the kings will bow down to him. All the nations will submit. Verse 12, for he will rescue the needy when they cry out for help the oppressed who ha- and the oppressed who have no defender. So he will come in and he will take care of these people. It's not a sense of dread that is bringing these kings. It's a sense of admiration and love. Wouldn't that be great to have leaders that were so admired that people would be lining up to be working with you? Think of uh, that cry out for help. This this word kind of brings out the idea of a child crying out for help. How many fathers throughout history have gotten up in the middle of the night, adrenaline running when they heard their their child cry out, posed for action, posed for danger, posed for whatever is needed. And that's that's the picture we have, whether we are fathers, whether we had good fathers or bad fathers, we have a heavenly father who does that, who comes when we cry out for help. What a king. Verse 13, he will take pity on the poor and the needy. Now, in the lives of the needy, he will save. Pity usually means to kind of look compassionately, um, to have sympathy. But this king goes farther. He doesn't just have pity and say, well, I feel this. He puts legs onto his feelings and goes out and does action. He takes sympathy and turns it into empathy and turns that into action. And so this pity is not a condescending detachment. Instead, it is a love and endearment to those who are suffering. Verse 14, from harm and violence, he will defend them. He will value their lives. The harm and the violence, the harm represents what is done inside the law and the violence is represented what's done outside the law. And so these are how the poor can be hurt. The fox and the lion combining against the lamb, but the shepherd wins. The shepherd comes to those who are defenseless. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are just so good. We got to pause and there's some application here that I want us to get. So first, we need to thank God for his mercy toward believers. Let's not forget that we are who is in this passage. This can speak directly to us. We are the ones who cry out. We are the ones who at times are poor and needy. We are the ones who need to be saved Because ultimately, we are the weak who can't even save ourselves. Remember what Romans 5.6 says, while you were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us. That's us. And in Galatians it says, not only did he die for us, he became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Our king did what we couldn't do in taking our place. Secondly, we need to pray for fellow Christians who are victims of oppression and violence. Last year there were 215 million Christians who because of their faith were beaten, abducted, raped, tortured, forced into marriages or murdered. 215 million just last year. That's about two thirds of the American population. So if you're sitting in a white a watch party right now, look around and two thirds of the people in that watch party would have been killed if, that, if America had the persecution that we see elsewhere. We need to constantly be thinking of those who are oppressed and have violence put on them for their faith. The third thing we see is we need to appeal to Christ's character on behalf of those who suffer domestic sexual abuse, prejudice, discrimination, and all other forms of injustice. Remember, Jesus, when he showed up in Luke 4, he's reading from Isaiah, talking about opening the prison to those who are bound, proclaiming the Lord's favor from Isaiah 61. The answer to injustice is the gospel. And Jesus says, I have fulfilled this. We have a king who has a sensitive ear, and he hears the cries of those who cry out and those who cry out on their behalf. And then finally, in ver- in our fourth thing we can see is we need to work towards uh, choosing leaders that line up with God's design. Micah 6, eight says, Oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require but do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. We can't ignore God's standards of justice and hope that our country's just going to kind of find a way through. Ultimately, we have God's standards. It's clear to us in nature. We need to hold our elected officials to that. And we're going to disagree on what that looks like, but as Christians, we need to be humble with each other and, and, and show m- Empathy and mercy to each other when we disagree. Verse 15, long may he live. May they offer gold from Sheba. May they continually pray for him. May they pronounce blessings on him all day long. So these are the coronation gifts. People would gladly throw them down at the king's feet and then say, It wasn't much. It was everything I have, but it wasn't much. Verse 16, may there be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the tops of the mountains may it sway. The tops of the mountains will grow grain. A place where there is no soil. There's so much abundance in this king's kingdom that the tops of the mountains will grow. May its fruit trees flourish like the forests of Lebanon. May its crops be as abundant as the grass of the earth. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. This blessing, people would come and want to be around this king because of being around him is a blessing. So now verse 17 is kind of the end of this book 1 and book 2 of the Psalms. There's a kind of a connection here. We see that all nations will call him blessed. Again, that's that Genesis 12 promise to Abraham. The second thing we see is the very last word is the word blessed. And we go back to Psalm 1, and it says, Blessed is the man. Very last word, very first word. These are the bookends on the entirety of these 72 psalms. It's a verbal inclusio of it. And and one author writes it this way. This frame also encircles all the cries for help and all the praise in these psalms. All 72 psalms. All of the doubt and abandonment, The saving grace and presence of God give this word happy, deep, or blessed, deep and abiding meaning. The audience can learn what it means to be happy from reading these two books of Psalms. And only the poetry of praise and pain can teach such lessons. I just love that picture, that it starts with Psalm 1 and now it's finishing in Psalm 2. But the author doesn't leave us there. He takes us even higher, universally higher into God's realm. And we get this doxology, a word of praise is what that means. This is the longest doxology in all of the Psalms. Kind of pulls back the curtain and says, all of what you've read from Psalm 1 to the end of Psalm 72, here is who's behind it all, the God who's behind it all. It's a fitting response to the 71 Psalms and the 17 verses in 72. God is in charge. Look at this. We see first of all the Lord God the God of Israel deserves praise. He alone accomplishes amazing things. That's acknowledging that God does these wonders. His glorious name deserves praise forevermore. We we attribute to him the glory that he deserves. May his majestic splendor fill the whole earth. We ask that his name be lifted up. And then agreeing some of your translations will say amen and amen. It means we agree, we agree. So we agree with that and we, we, we lay that out and that's how the psalmist wants to finish this entire picture of this king and of the life of a blessed man, a blessed king and all of the psalms in between. Verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended. This just means that these two books together were considered what were called the prayers or Psalms of David. Now, there's still Psalms by David later in the book of Psalms, but this group would have been passed around at some point, and this is a concluding from it. So, we can see from this job description that no one on earth is ever going to meet this. This is the kind of ruler we're to look for. And none of the rulers that we talked about, none of the leaders that we currently have or have ever had, has come close. So who is this leader? Well, it's clear that this leader description, but the the leader description does not match a single person. Instead, this matches a coming king. The godly man who fears the Lord, Psalm 1. And the king who will rightly rule, Psalm 2. They come together in this king. This king's reign is endless, verse 5. It's boundless, verse 8. Is this hyperbole? No. The claims could not possibly be for any earthly king. The full harvest on top of a mountain? There's no king that can do that. The grain growing on the top of the mountain. This means it's a supernatural, renewed world. And not Solomon, not David's offspring, not a single person who's ever been a president or a king on this earth has come close to this, except for the son of David known as Jesus. This king can only be Jesus. When we are under his reign, we have supernatural life and growth now. All the old legends of a great king returning to put all things right, find their fulfillment here. Okay, so that's, that's our Sunday school answer, isn't it? When in doubt, say Jesus. But look at this king. His, his kingdom stretches in every direction. It will not end. He'll right all the wrongs. The poor will be taken care of. These are all truths we know and love. But as I told you at the beginning, I promised you there's something even more from this. That's an amazing truth, and I don't want us to miss that by the fact I say there's more okay? That's that's the number one truth. There's, There's something else we can see here. So, there's two lessons we can take from this psalm as we look at this as a job description. The first one is a decent lesson. I think it's one that we all know we should do, but we don't. But the second one is really where the power lies in changing the way we view things. So, the first way we can learn from this psalm is that politicians and leaders can't save us. They can't. As a matter of fact, it appears they're more adept at failing than they are at succeeding. When you see your leaders in the light of the job description of the League job description, they're failing. They're not even close. So why do we keep returning to that believable lie that the next politician is the one we need? Or the one we have is not good enough. Or that other one is way worse than this one. All leaders are flawed. Their flaws harm. Their flaws will show. So don't put your faith in leaders and politicians and political parties and all the other groups that promise to solve your problems. Put your hope in the true king, the one king. Put your hope in Christ and then pray, pray that your leaders act more like Christ than not. So that's the first one. I think we could have probably come up with that on our own. But let's look at the second one. And here's where we get down to it. Our leaders are going to let us down. When they let us down... And when they get it right, just like when we do the right thing or when we do the wrong thing, this is not meant to be ammunition to cancel them, to delete them. It's not meant for us to be like, well, I led really well. I'm the best thing ever. I can solve all these problems, believing the same lie that we just talked about about political leaders about ourselves. What this is meant to teach us is that when a leader succeeds on any portion of the Psalm 72 list, we are to see it as God's common grace and point us to the king that our little king is acting like. When our leaders fail, and they will, it is meant to point us to the one who will never fail, our King Jesus. Now, think about how this changes your perspective, right? Yes, we hold our leaders up to a high standard, an impossibly high standard. And when they miss it, we are not to be, stupid leader, let's replace you with this one. Instead, we're to go, God, your kingdom come. Your kingdom's the one I'm longing for. And this shadow, this poor impression, this poor king will never match up. I want your kingdom even more. And when our leaders succeed, I want your succeeding even more. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When we have those leaders and they get it right, we are to go, "Lord, thank you for that little taste of what it's going to be like when you're in charge." And when God blesses us with leaders that are not killing us, not locking us in jail, when we are not being killed all the day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, don't believe that, that leader is, don't believe the lie that that leader is any different. Instead, we look to the leader, the king, the one who is perfect, and will never let us down. Keep your eyes on God's eternal kingdom. The king's coming. And when he does, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with us, with man. He will dwell with us and we will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain. All former things have passed away. There is no leader that can do those things except for Jesus, our true King. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm. Lord, thank you for the picture of the true King and how he will rule and how he will reign and how he will right every single wrong. Lord, we long for that day. Lord, when our leaders get it wrong and they do things that we disagree with or they have character flaws that don't allow us to truly trust them, Lord, help us to long for you even more. And when they do get it right, help us to not believe the lie that this is the perfect leader we've waited for because they aren't. Help us to long for you. And Lord, help us to pray for our elected officials. Help us to pray for them that they would be more like your son than not. Lord, it has been so incredibly um, kind of you to have given us this period of time where our leaders don't round us up and kill us that we are not subjugated to the persecution that is elsewhere in the world. So Lord, instead of thanking a party or thanking a constitution or thanking any of that, Lord, help us to thank you for what you've done. Lord Allow us to pray for those who are in charge and allow us to plead for their salvation. And Lord, we look forward to your kingdom where you will wipe away every tear. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more death. Lord, that's going to be amazing. Thank you for that promise. In your holy and exalted name, amen.